Good morning. My name is Christine Dawkins, and my family and I have been coming here to Mansfield Bible Church for about a year. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV version today, and it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. Good morning. It is with great joy that I'm with you this morning. Um, it's been four months since I last uh, preached a sermon here. Uh, had uh, three months of recovery from surgery uh, for cancer, and uh, uh, it is such a joy to be back, be sharing the word together. Amen. God is good. Amen. He is so good. Well, let's get into the word together. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter, and I just thought this would be very appropriate. When you read those words that we saw on the screen, does that sound like the words of an uneducated fisherman? I mean, you look at those words and you go, he came a long way. 30 years after Christ's death, he writes this book. And you can tell he grew in his faith and he grew through trials. The very thing that he's talking about in this book, he grew in. The very thing that you see in here, this, in, in 1 Peter you see suffering and in 2 Peter you also see suffering. But in 1 Peter you see suffering from without, persecution. And as I've been in Pakistan and other places, I've seen the Christian church that has struggled because they've been persecuted for their faith. When I've looked at uh, different places in the world that you read about, that you hear about, you see that same thing coming about. 
persecution for faith, trials from without, trials that come into our lives, and you know that they're for a purpose, that God, our good God, has a purpose in this suffering. And he wants us to know, in fact, because there's a God, he gives meaning to suffering. If there was no God, there would be no meaning for suffering. It would just be something you just suck it up and endure through. But God gives meaning to suffering. And so when we struggle, these are some places that we can go. First in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, the suffering is actually from within. And not from within us, but within the church with false teachers and false prophets. And so you see that Peter has come a long way in his understanding of this idea of suffering. But the thing that he comes to, and the thing that I love, the phrase that I'm going to camp on in this message today, out of this passage, is born again to a living hope. Hope. Hope is something that's crucial to life. When we give up hope, when we lose hope, we want to give up, don't we? We struggle without hope. It's because of our hope that we continue on. It's because of our hope and the hope that Jesus gives us when we're born again is a living hope. It's not just wishful thinking. In our world, if you don't have Christ, hope is just kind of a wish that you hope that comes about. It's not something that's certain. It's not something that's a given. But when you have Jesus Christ... He not only has hope, but it's a living hope. It's a hope that's sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil as the author of Hebrews tells us. It's sure and certain. It's not just wishful, hopeful, uh, optimistic view on life. It's a living hope. And so the question is, do you have that? Do you have that living hope? You see, we gain that living hope according to the passage here in verse 3. And I know I'm jumping ahead a, a little bit. But we have that living hope by being born again. Which means the gospel. It means living out the gospel in our lives. Living out daily the gospel message. Living out daily the gospel, the power of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. And that we have eternal life in him. That we have, uh, as he's, he gets ready to talk about the sanctifying work of the Spirit, working within us. It changes us. It makes us different. We'll never be the same. Living hope. Do you have that? If you don't, it means that you don't have Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about that because there's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Many misunderstandings as a matter of fact. People are confused about it. Peter was confused about the gospel. When Jesus tells him in John chapter 16 and verse 21, he says that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. What did he misunderstand? I mean, can you imagine rebuking Jesus? <laughs> I can't even imagine that. Peter was of a different sort, wasn't he? He goes, this isn't going to happen to you. 
And Jesus is basically saying, because he says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you don't have the understanding of God. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, John 16, 21, but the things of men. You have the things of men, not the things of God. And so my question is, in our culture, in our society, as believers... Do we have in mind the things of God? Do we understand the simple gospel message? Because it not only impacts us, it impacts our daily lives. And so we need to understand it. We need to understand it. So what, you know, I was interesting. One day I was, I was, I had somebody in my office I uh, had a marker board in that office, and so I, uh, I, I began, I just asked him, I said, what, what, did it, what does it take to be saved in your mind? When you're thinking about being saved, what, is, what do you mean by that? And they came up with about five or six things. I said, well, I believe in God, uh, be a good person, do good things for others, uh, show penance, uh, give to others, and there were a list of, there were, there were about 10 things they listed, and those are some of the ones that I just remember. And I thought, okay, are these things the gospel? Are these the things that are going to cause a person to be saved? Be a good person, for instance. Well, I can tell you, I can't be good enough. If my being good enough was, was, were, were turned into money, I would have is, insufficient funds. And so, eh, that's out, Right? So be a good person, that's not the gospel. Do good things for others. Well, yeah, that'd be something that a believer should do, but we do that after the fact. It's not something we do before the fact. It's not something that causes me to be saved. It's something saved people do. And so doing good things for others, eh, that's not the gospel either. Showing penance. Uh, last year, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Portugal. Uh, it was right after, the day before I found out that I, I, had, I got diagnosed with cancer and then we left for our trip. Great trip, right? And part of the trip, we were in Fatma. Fatma is a, a place that's known for, for healing. The people go there. They want to get healing. They go there. And when you go there, they have these, the, these shops and they'll sell you these little wax uh, body parts, basically, a lungs or a heart or, or whatever, a head, uh, uh, and, they'll, and, they'll, and, and you're supposed to take those and then you're supposed to uh, put them in a fire and you, you see these people crawling on their knees. And they didn't have a prostate, so I couldn't, you know, get one of those. So I, so I, I see these people and they're on their knees and they're crawling to this place and I'm wanting to run up to them and go, you don't have to do this. This isn't, this isn't salvation. This isn't going to gain you any favor with God. You don't need this. You've been given everything that you need by Jesus. I wanted to stop every person that I saw doing that. I was in Mexico City a number of years ago where the, the uh, Virgin of Guadalupe, the cloth hangs. And I saw people doing the same thing and I'm thinking, no, you don't have to do this. It's not necessary. 
Jesus took care of it all. And so showing penance, eh, not sufficient. Giving to others, that's something we do after the fact, not before the fact. And so eh, on that one too. Believe in God. Now that's the one you think, oh, well, that, maybe that one, that one. No, it's believing in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus, and we see that in this text. We see this throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. It's faith in the Messiah, faith in the Christ, faith in Jesus is what gives us salvation. It's faith alone in Christ alone. It's nothing else. There's a lot of people that believe in God, but it's believing on Jesus. There's, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's faith in Jesus, and so none of those are the gospel. And it's amazing how you can ask people, what, what in your mind does it take to be saved? And, and people will give you this list of things. Baptism is added on the list or, 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 or any number of things. And it's not those things. It's just simply faith in Jesus. In John 1, 12, John says, uh, has, quotes Jesus and Jesus says, in um, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, but as many as received him, this is John speaking, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe in his name. It's simply re receiving Jesus and we have everything. We become children. We became heirs of all that he has. Heirs of heaven, heirs of a relationship with God. We have it all. And we think, oh, everybody's a child of God. No, I don't get the right to call myself his child. He's the one that pronounces on me that I'm his child. And so how does that happen? How do I know that that proclamation from him is going to come about? John 1.12, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe in his name. Peter figured that out and he wrote one of, some, of, one, some of the most beautiful words about the gospel here in this passage in front of us. And so I want us to, to think about it. I want us to look at it because we got to realize that justice has to be done. Because of, 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 of our sinfulness and because we are born into sin and then we've committed sin, we are, we are uh, plenty guilty of sin. And you think, well, I, I didn't do what Peter did. You know, because you think, if, was Peter forgiven? He denied Jesus. I mean, here's a guy who understood denying Jesus. And, and, and can you imagine that? And, and yet we see in this passage in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Peter knew something about mercy. He understood the mercy of God because he had denied Jesus. And yet Jesus drew him back in. He, re he received Jesus as his Savior. He understood that and he wanted to make sure that we understand that. But justice has to be done. You see, if we're sinful, and I didn't do what Peter did, I didn't deny Jesus, or I don't think that I've ever done that, not in my early days before I received Christ, first 17 years of my life, but I was plenty sinful. 
So I didn't sin in the same way that Peter did, but I'm sinful. How do I know that? Well, I know that if, uh, if I've ever been angry at somebody unjustly, and of course we always say, oh, I was righteous in all my anger, right? <laughs> it's always been justified. No, no, it's not. Jesus said, you've heard it said that if uh, you commit murder, you're guilty of judgment. Well, I say to you that if you're angry at your brother, you deserve judgment. Wow. And it gets real quiet in here because we've all been there, right? <laughs> we all know what that's like to be angry and to kind of lose it and then realize we got to go and say, I'm sorry. Right? So we're all guilty of sin. And you think, well, it's just the one sin. Uh, I can probably, if we sat down together, I bet I could find a few more. Right? You could do the same with me. Find a few more sins that we've committed. And you think, well, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I do more good than I do bad. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much good you've done versus bad. It's like the criminal who says, well, I just killed the one person. You know, I've been a good guy. I mean, I, I drive the speed limit. I, I mean, I, I've been kind to, to animals, you know, I'd rescued one or whatever. I mean, you, but, but one, one thing, one break of the law, one breach of the law, you're guilty of the law. And just because somebody kills one person and is good the rest of his life, he still goes to prison, right? right. You commit one sin, one, one. Not greater than the other. One sin. Have you committed one sin in your life? And sin is missing the mark. Sin's less than perfection. Sin means I'm angry at my brother. It means that maybe you lusted after someone. Maybe you did something else. I mean, there's so many. You're unkind at a time when you needed to be kind. You're impatient. I mean, there's so many places where we sin every single day. And it only takes one to deserve hell. One to deserve judgment. Somebody has to pay. I was reminded of that scene in National Treasure, and I have that queued up so that we can play it here in a second, but uh, no, wait a minute, don't, not yet. I'd really love not to go to prison. Oh, I guess it's going. Oh, I gave her the cue, but I didn't give it, I, I shouldn't, I should have uh, told her, wait. Um, in this scene, it's at the end of the movie, and uh, Ben uh, Gates, if you haven't seen the movie, he basically finds this huge treasure that's from, you know, ancient times of this big thing. It's underneath, you know, uh, the city. And uh, he, uh, he's now trying to come clean with Agent Sadusky. Agent Sadusky is, is uh, the guy that's been trying to capture him all this time. He's stolen the Declaration of Independence. He's now returning that, and he says, you know, Sadusky says, well, you don't know anything about a bargaining chip, do you? And he goes, I can't do the Declaration of Independence as a bargaining chip. And so he, he's, he's, he's going through this process, and he's told him where the treasures are, and he says, you really don't understand a bargaining chip. And he says, yeah, I know. And, he, and, he's, and he's trying to get everybody off clean. He says, don't hold anything against them. And he says, he would really not like to go to jail. And that's where we pick up the scene here. So, go ahead and play it again. What about you? I'd really love not to go to prison. I can't even begin to describe how much I would love not to go to prison. Someone's got to go to prison, man. Well, if you've got a helicopter, I think I can help with that. 
You're under arrest, Mr. Howe. We've got you on kidnapping, attempted murder, and trespassing on government property. So, he's set free, and Ian goes to jail, right? Ian takes his place. Because somebody has to go to jail. Justice has to be done. Justice has to be done for your one sin in the universe. Justice has to be done. And either you take that justice and you spend an eternity in hell because that's what the justice requires. Requires eternal death. Or Jesus takes your place. And because he's the perfect sacrifice, he doesn't have to suffer for himself. He suffers for you, and you are free. Amen. You are set free from the law of sin and death in this life as well. And you have a living hope, an eternal hope in the heavens. We've got to understand the gospel. That it's faith in Jesus Christ. And that we take that step. When I was in 1972, as a, as a young college student, I took that step and I put my faith in Jesus. I didn't even know I needed to do that. And somebody explained it to me and made it clear for me to understand. And at that day, I, I, it was three weeks, I, I had questions and I began to ask these questions that I never had knew that somebody could answer for me. And, we, and they answered my questions. They helped me to see what the Word of God said. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And it's forever changed me. That was 50 years ago. I received Jesus as my Savior. And I finally understood what the gospel was. I'd misunderstood for the first 17 years of my life. I thought that maybe I could do it. I didn't realize Jesus had to do it. I had insufficient funds. There was no way that I could pay what I owed. You have Peter, who was an uneducated fisherman, who began to follow Jesus he misunderstood the gospel, and then he got it. And he writes these words to us, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Show that map. This is the area, it's in the area of what's today Turkey. You have Bithynia and Pontus up there at the top, Galatia in the middle, Cappadocia to the right, and to the left, Asia. And you know what's in Asia? The seven churches that Greg Lingle just preached about. So Peter's writing to these same churches as well. He's want to make sure that they understand. And he talks about the elect exiles. And you kind of go, oops. I've had people tell me, I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. Do you believe your Bible? Because they're there. Now how we understand them is crucial and, and, and may be some debate, but... But you can't say I don't believe in election or predestination. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. The interesting thing, and I read this this week in a, in a commentary and I loved it. The purpose of election, the, the purpose of this whole predestination thing is for our comfort. It's, it's to help us. It's for encouragement. It wasn't written to discourage us. 
It wasn't written in order that we would, we would just use it as a point of argument against one another. It was written, God, wrote, God did these things, God chose us from the foundation of the world to bring comfort to our hearts. Does it bring uh, a, a, a lot of discussion? Sure it does. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. God is very deep. There's things that we're not going to always understand exactly as he understood them or as he means them. The elect exiles of this version, in fact, he goes on and talks about this idea of election. And he says, um, he uses this phrase in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. And I know some would say, oh, well, uh, uh, God looks down the corridors of time and then he waits for us to make our decision and then he selects and elects those. And that's how they resolve the issue, trying to resolve uh, foreknowledge and election and our choice, our ability to choose. The interesting thing is, is what that means is, and here's the question you've got to ask. Is God waiting on us to take the initiative and then he responds to us? Or does he take the initiative and we respond to him? That's a key question. That's a question we have to wrestle with. Who takes the initiative? We love because he first loved us. He's the one that takes the initiative. How does, the, how does this all work together then? And, and you say, this passage seems to say, according to the foreknowledge, right? And so looking down the quarters of time. But, but when you think about it, there's a key distinction here. According to is different than because of. It doesn't say because of his foreknowledge. It's according to his foreknowledge. And the word foreknowledge carries the idea carries the idea of uh, experiential knowledge, the word gnosko in Greek. That somehow God is involved in the process with his foreknowledge. It's not just he's sitting passively waiting for us to do something, but that he's actively involved. He is outside of time and somehow he is able to, because he can't do something outside of his character and foreknowledge is just a part of his character as everything else. So somehow it's involved. But it's involved because he's involved in our lives. He's actively involved. He's the one that takes the initiative. He's the one, if you, if you looked at it as a marriage proposal, he's the one that pops the question. And then we respond. You have to ask yourself the question, what, is, what does God do in salvation and what do we do? Well, I've got a, I've got a slide on that. Uh, no, no, go to the next one. Uh, no, go on with the box. Is this the box? Oh, yeah, this is the one where I had a box. Uh, uh, it's uh, what God does on the left side, what we do on the right side. You notice we just got one thing to do. <laughs> and I could have made this list on the left a lot longer than what I've got. Because he does all these things. The Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God first loved us. God shows us mercy. Christ died for us. He declares us not guilty. That's the word justification. He gives us the ability to believe. He chooses from the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. He draws us to himself. And what do we do? We respond by faith. That's it. That's all we do. That's all we need to do. Praise God that's all we need to do. 
that we simply respond by faith. That's what I did in 1972. I just simply responded in faith. I just received Jesus as my Savior. And I was saved forever and ever. And that's an amazing thing. And that's something that we'll see also in this passage. In fact, we might as well go ahead and jump there since I brought it up. Sorry, I'm a little bit here and there this morning. But um, if you notice, it says, uh, to an inheritance, uh, this see, uh, it, we're born again to a living hope in verse uh, three. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's kind of a key part. Right? His resurrection. We're going to be celebrating that in a couple of weeks. And it's not just a simple thing. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He is alive. That's why we have a living hope. Amen? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. We talked about that in John 1.12. That we are children and as children we are heirs. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That is a lot. I mean, there's so much theology in here. I wish I could just spend about a week with you guys going through this passage. Here's an uneducated fisherman who learned a lot of theology. And he expressed so much here. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. What does that mean? It won't go away. Most inheritances that you get. When my, when my mom passed away, we had to go through all of her things. And there was a lot of stuff that just went to the Mansfield Mission Center, right? Because nobody wanted them. So many things of ours, that things that I did keep and take, they break down. Pictures, they fade. Words on a page, they begin to fade as well. You begin to forget what their voice sounds like. In fact, one of the things I was going through, I was going through some of the old videos and, that we had taken when we were growing up. And of course, they're the eight millimeter don't have any sound except the sound of the projector going, right? And there were things that I thought, well, I'm going to cut these things out, you know, and just get down because my mom liked to just kind of hold the camera as she as we're diving down the road. These road pictures, long road pictures where you see cars passing by and just stuff, you know, and you're kind of like, I don't know why she did that. She just liked, that's something she liked to do. And I was going to go through the eight millimeters and cut some out. And then I, I saw the cars that were going by back in the 50s, cars in the 40s and 30s that were still on the road. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not cutting this out. And then I thought about it, you know, later whenever, and, and, uh, and I I, got, I was really moved in my heart because there was the, now the videos with sound and I heard her, my mom and my dad talking to each other and I loved hearing their voice. It reminded me of sitting in the back seat just listening to them talk and the radio was going and they were just talking back and forth and about you know, something today would be meaningless except for hearing their voice. And you think, why did Jesus die for us? So that we could just be with God. We could just be with him. It's because of relationship with him, relationship with the Father, 
that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's not going to fade away. It's not something we'll forget. It's something that he's talking about the assurance of our salvation. I know some of you may struggle with that. It was something that I struggled with for years trying to figure out all these different passages that seemed to point to some pointed to assurance and some pointed to uh, maybe I could lose my salvation. And as I wrestled through all the passages and tried to put them all together, I came to the conclusion we have an assured salvation that's unfading, undefiled. It isn't going anywhere. We are guaranteed it because we have the Spirit of God who guarantees our inheritance, Ephesians 1 talks about. We can't lose our salvation because we are bought with a price. We are not our own. I don't own myself. He owns me. He would have to kick me out or sell me or whatever he's going to do with me. That's on him. It's not on me. And that's very reassuring. I cannot lose the salvation that he's, been, that he's given me. It is permanent. And in fact, I have a place kept in heaven for you. We have a reserved seat. I mean, when you walked in here, you had to kind of find, find a seat. And if somebody sat in the seat you've sat in for the last five years, you're kind of looking at them like, hey, you're in my seat. Sorry, we don't have reserved seats here, so you're going to have to sit somewhere else, right? You have a place reserved in heaven, has your name on it. It is yours. You're gonna, it's assured of you. It's not going anywhere. It's unfading. It's an inheritance that's been guaranteed by the Spirit of God. That's the salvation that we have because it's not based on me. It's based on what Jesus Christ did for us. And when I receive Christ, I become a partaker. I become a child. I become adopted into God's family. And that's powerful. And what, what is it guarded through? Through faith. See that in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed. You see faith used four times in this in verses five to, to nine. Here in verse five, it's through faith. In in verse seven, we have the tested genuineness of your faith. And that one kind of gives you a little bit of heartburn. All of a sudden you go, Oh wow, is my faith genuine? Maybe I'm not saved. And so you've prayed about 20 times, right? To receive Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, especially when you're a kid, I, I've, I've talked to some kids as they were growing up and they uh, said, did you receive Christ as your savior? Yeah. Have you done it more than once? Well, and they look a little embarrassed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you're not alone. A lot of people have done that because they're, they're, they're worried about this tested genuineness is to test the genuineness going forward. As, as, as we believe, we, if we believe in truth, if we believe with our heart, we know that, that we are saved. It's not, it's not rocket science. Is there more that I understand now than I did 50 years ago in my faith? Absolutely. In fact, sometimes I wonder why God even took me with what, how little I knew. You know? I knew nothing. I didn't even know where the books of the Bible were. I had to use the index or the two-thumb method where you just kind of flip through and then kind of stick your thumb in there and kind of like act like you know what you're doing right there. And you just wait till you see the name flip by. You hope it's not a small book. <laughs> because <laughs> you're going to miss it. It says, though you do not see him in verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible. I found myself emotional today. I guess in part just kind of being back 
you know, kind of feeling like that I'm kind of back in life, you know, itself, you know, after the surgery and stuff, but just the joy of the Lord, the joy of this salvation that we have, that one day we're going to see him. We have close friends, dear friends. There's been a number of tragedies that have happened recently to people in or associated with our church family. And yet there's a joy inexpressible in knowing who Jesus is. He takes the sting away from death. And then he says, obtaining is the outcome of your faith. Not the outcome of your works, not the outcome of your penance, not the outcome of anything else. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Wow. I simply believe that's all? Yes, that's it. He made it so simple. I mean, he gives salvation away. Think about it. If you were God, would you give salvation away or would you make somebody crawl on their knees? Would you make somebody work really hard and you were kind of sitting there almost like the puppet master going, ah, that wasn't quite enough. You know, try it again. I mean, that's almost the picture people have of God. And it's like, what a twisted view of God. God gives salvation away. He makes it so easy. He gives it away, but he doesn't force it on you. He asks you to do one thing and you opt in. He doesn't, you know, in some, uh, in some places you'll go on a website and they already automatically opt you in and you have to opt out. But some places you have to opt in. They give you the choice to opt in or not opt in. God does one thing to make that possible for you to opt in and that is to believe on Jesus. He does everything else. He pays the way. And so many times people think, well, I, I need to do something your way's already paid. You don't need to do anything. It's like going up, you know, the guy grabbing the ticket at the table. And you go, hey, I'll pay my way. And, oh, no, I got it. He pays for it. And then you go up to the cashier. Hey, I need to pay for my ticket. And they go, it's already been paid for, sir. Oh, but I need to pay for it. No, it's already been paid for. You can give me a tip if you want, but it's already been paid for. Your salvation has already been paid for. You don't need to pay for it. You don't need to do anything except believe on Jesus. Believe on Jesus. That's it. He made it so simple that a child can do it. He made it, and yet it's so deep and so profound that it confuses and confounds the wise. We, get, we stumble over it because it seems too easy. He did make it easy. It's on purpose that it's easy. But don't make any mistake that it didn't cost a lot. Jesus Christ died for us. He took our place. He hung on a cross. So that when we believe, we have eternal salvation that's reserved in heaven, kept for us. It's undefiled, won't fade away. It's the mercy of God that, it's, that it comes about. We don't deserve it. I don't deserve salvation, neither do you. It's the mercy of God. He comes to us and he gives us his grace, his riches at Christ's expense. I mean, all these things, all this theology that's rich in this passage. And he keeps it so simple at the same time. We have a living hope. And this living hope is what's designed to help us through the sufferings of this life. Because he says, in this you rejoice, verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're going through trials. You feel like you don't have hope. You got hope. That hope is Jesus. That hope is found in him. 
That hope is found in the faith and the salvation, born again to a living hope. It's, it's in the gospel. That's why it's so important for us to understand the gospel. It's not just for me to get into heaven. It's how I live my life. But I don't have to live that on my own either because when you look at the beginning of the passage, it says, in the sanctification of the, of the Spirit. Sanctification means that purifying, that relationship building, that learning to follow Jesus. I'm not learning to follow Jesus on my own. I'm learning to follow Jesus with the Spirit and the power of God living inside and residing in me, giving me the strength, giving me the wisdom, giving me the ability, giving me everything I need for life and godliness. And I have the Word of God that instructs me. Wow. And what it causes me to do is rejoice in difficulty. I don't rejoice in the difficulty itself. I rejoice in what it produces. In Romans 5, 1, we're told what it produces. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Oh yeah, three. Uh, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, what? Hope. Hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Sufferings produce hope. When you look at the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about this idea of, of what Jesus did, how, how we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who, by the way, is the author and perfecter of hope, who for the joy our, our author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So what did he do? The joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? You and me coming to Jesus. And he endured the cross. And I thought a perfect illustration of that is, is any woman who's given birth. They're not looking forward to the birthing process, right? That's no fun. Why do they have more than one child? Because they're looking at what's beyond, holding that sweet baby in their arms, right? And you go through the hard thing. Jesus did that. How do we do that? We do the same. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He's going to carry us through it. And then we stop, don't look at the difficulty that we're going through. We look beyond. When I've gone through this cancer diagnosis, I didn't look at the surgery that was coming up on December 21st of this last year. That was no fun. And the, and the recovery process, no fun. But what I'm looking for is cancer-free. Right? That's what I was looking for. Jesus Christ, he died on a cross because of the joy set before him. And he wants us to fix our eyes on him. Of what he's going to do in our lives through the difficulties, because there can be some great great joys. I've seen some, in 37 years, I've seen a lot of tragedy. In fact, a lot of pastors after a while, in fact, I remember Tim Keller who said, he said, uh, you know, 23 years for him, 23 years at the, uh, pastoring the church, he says it takes its toll. It does take its toll. You see the, the, a lot of difficult things, but you also see the hand of God. You see the hand of God working through those things and working in those people and it brings you joy to see that. And that's what I choose to focus on because I have a living hope and that hope is Jesus. So are you facing tough times? Do you have that living hope? You need to cling to him. 
You need to look to him. Maybe you need to spend some more time in this passage. But we got to ask ourselves, what am I counting on this life? John Ortberg talked about this in 2009 and, and he made the comment, he said, what am I counting on? Am I, am I building my life on the foundation that's solid enough that circumstances beyond my control cannot take it away? People have not gathered for the past 2,000 years to say the stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. <laughs> they have not said uh, the employment rate has risen. It has risen indeed. But for 2,000 years, people have said Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. We need to keep our focus on Jesus. We need to understand the gospel. If you have not received Christ as your Savior, that's the place to start so that you can be born again to a living hope. It's a simple thing. You just receive Jesus and just do it with your heart. If you have received Jesus, the gospel is still for you and for me. We need to live it out in our lives. And we live it out by living this living hope. When I was in Pakistan this last year and I was preaching to different groups, I shared openly about my cancer diagnosis. And I, and I just said, I have a peace about it. And I did and I do. My life is in God's hands. And the guy that, was, that I was with that had invited me over said, you do not know how powerful that was in people's lives. Because they, he said, there was a glow about you when you shared about it and he said, he said, here's the people that were going through persecution and suffering. And when they saw the hope that you have in Jesus, he says, you have no idea how powerful that was. I, I may not have any idea until I go to be with Jesus, how powerful that was. And it wasn't me. It wasn't something I wanted for, to have on that trip. But God used it to his glory. He uses the trials that we face to his glory, if we'll allow him to use those things, if we'll allow the sanctifying work of the Spirit to work in us. And so that's my challenge this morning, that all of us think about, what is it that you're facing? And then the question is, is how can I have a living hope? How can I live with the hope of Christ so that others begin to see and they're drawn to the Savior? And it's not us drawing him, it's what God has done in us. We're just simply messengers. He's the one doing the drawing. And may he use us to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace towards us. We thank you that Jesus Christ died in our place. We thank you that he died so that we don't have to suffer the punishment of our sins. That somebody had to pay that penalty and Jesus did it. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray for those who are here today that, that have been on the fence about receiving you as their Savior. I pray that they would do so now. Not because I say it, but because your Spirit is leading them. Father, I pray that you would draw them to you. And Father, I pray that you would guide us, lead us, help us to live that living hope it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's, not, it's, it's something that's alive. It's something that because Jesus is alive, uh, uh, you have this living hope for us. It's sure and steadfast. It's not just wishful thinking. Lord, thank you for that. 
Thank you that it won't fade away. It won't perish. It won't go anywhere. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live. I know that there's some people going through some very difficult things right now. I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would help them, draw them to you, draw them close to you. Build in them the things that you talked about, perseverance and proven character and hope. Build hope in our hearts, Father. Help us to be some of the most hopeful people in the world that we don't let and, and are, are not defined by our trials, but defined by the hope that we have in Jesus. Help us to grow in our love. Help us to learn to follow Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our strength. We thank you that you put your spirit within us, the sanctifying work of the spirit to grow us, to strengthen us, to give us understanding of your word. Guide us, Lord, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.